And, well, don't get uh, too comfortable, I guess. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Numbers uh, chapter 22 as we continue to make our way through the Pentateuch. As you turn to Numbers 22, we're uh, going to be spending uh, this week and next, Lord willing, in kind of this, this section of the book of Numbers as we enter into the, the last uh, section of the book of Numbers. Remember we said that the book of Numbers could be divided into five sections and kind of based on where the people are and here we're in that, that final section of the, as the people encamp on the plains of Moab, on the east side of the Jordan River, getting ready to go into the Promised Land. They're going to be here on the plains of Moab uh, throughout the rest of the book of Numbers and through the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. So as, as you turn there to Numbers 22, I also just want to echo uh, what um, was said earlier and encouraging to come out this evening for our Sunday evening service. We're going to be in the book of Haggai, as Kirk shares with us from God's Word, and just always enjoy that time together on Sunday evenings. We'll be at the church building at 6 p.m. That's when the service will begin. Well, uh, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read His Word together, we're in this section where we see God working through Balaam as He blesses the people instead of cursing them. But we're going to be in chapter 22 this morning, and I'm going to kind of do a longer reading. If you need to sit down, uh, feel free to do so. Verse 1 of Numbers 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amwah, to call him, saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. And so the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And so the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. 
But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And so Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side, and When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, and so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only speak the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, Father, we do ask for your encouragement. We thank you for giving this word to us and we thank you for your sovereignty and for your, your sovereign King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Two and a half weeks ago, after the, the conference in Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, the, the team went a, a couple other places. So one of the places we went was to Cape Point, which is one of the most, I think, beautiful places in the world. There's this point there where you can stand and stand on the, a cliff near a lighthouse and, and look out uh, over uh, the oceans, a, a place where, as one South African puts it, uh, the two oceans, the Indian and the Atlantic Ocean, come together in our hearts. And you look out to, the, to, to one side, to the, to the east, and there's the Indian Ocean in the distance, and there you look to the, to the, the west, and there is the Atlantic Ocean. It's just this, this beautiful place there on the top of this cliff. And one point, uh, Whitney and I were walking along a little sidewalk headed up toward where the rest of the group was, and 
uh, to this, this lighthouse, and we're, we're walking along the sidewalk, and I stop, and I say, oh, look, there's, there's a baboon. Oh, and, and there's, there's about half a dozen more baboons. And I think it's important at this point in the story just to stop for a moment and, and just uh, let you know baboons are dangerous. I mean, there were signs all, you need to understand there's a backdrop for what happens next. Baboons are dangerous. There were signs all over the place saying baboons are dangerous. Don't feed them. Uh, don't tickle them. You know, don't play with them. Uh, and then also, um, if you Google baboons and danger, You'll, you'll see, like one of the first articles will say, yes, baboons are dangerous. Daniel was right. And then it'll also mention, uh, it'll mis- mention this area that we're in, Cape, Cape Town and Cape Point. And so anyway, we're, we're walking on the sidewalk. I, I stop and I say, oh, do you, do you see the baboons? Look, there's some baboon, a baboon there. Oh, and there's, there's six more. And, and do, do you see those? And Whitney said, yes, uh, I, I do see those baboons. I said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll just uh, we've got to join the group, so we'll just keep our heads down, kind of walk past them, don't look at them. And, and so I, I started walking uh, for about 15 seconds. And then I, I, hear this, I hear this voice, do not worry, you're safe with me, I will protect you. Well, that's kind of a weird thing to hear. And so I, 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 I turn back and I realize a couple things. One, I realize that my wife has not moved an inch. Um, once she saw the baboon, both of her feet just kind of stayed in place, and I've been walking for about 15 seconds briskly, uh, separating myself from her, and I, I realize also as I look back that it looks like I have abandoned my wife in the middle of a troop of baboons, uh, which, again, I want to be clear, was not my intention, okay? And then I also realized that some South African Romeo was offering to help my wife get past the baboons, okay? And he's already helping some other ladies, so he's got this one lady next to him that he's helping get past the baboons, and then he's uh, offering to protect, you know, uh, do not worry, you're safe with me, I will protect you, and he walks. Very, and I also noticed that he, he does, honestly, to be, to, be, to be fair, he does look like he would do a better job protecting my wife from a baboon attack than I would, um, if that gives you any sort of picture. And then... Um, and then I, I, I realized that he is walking very confidently. I mean, he does look like he knows what he's doing. I don't know how you walk past baboons well, but he was doing it, right? Nailing it. And then later I realized, well, of course he was confident. He had two human shields on either side of him. But um, anyway, I, I catch up with my wife and I say, hey, sorry about that. I thought you were with me. And she goes, no, no, it's okay. Uh, just baboons are dangerous. I said, yes, I know. Um, then about, about uh, 15 minutes goes by, and wouldn't you know it, we, we come across another baboon. But this baboon was being aggressive, like it was grabbing at some woman's purse. And I said, okay, this is, this is redemption time. And I said, hey, to the baboon, which um, seemed confident at the time. And then I looked back at Whitney, and I said something to the effect of, I spread my arms, I said, do not worry. <laughs> You're safe with me. I will protect you. Something like that, but not as eloquent. And um, the, the, ba- the, 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 the baboon danger uh, goes away, and I put my arms down, and I look back, and she's gone. Um, just totally gone. I think she was looking for the other guy. But um, <laughs> later I find her. She says, no, I was just taking cover. I said, okay, uh, I understand. Now, in, in Whitney's defense, right? 
um, she's right to be a little uncertain about my ability to protect her from a baboon attack. Um, I do not think I would be able, I'd try, but I think she's right to say, you know what, his ability to protect me from baboons is somewhat limited, right? In fact, as much as I might want to say the words, uh, do not worry, you're safe with me, I will protect you, just, just because I might want to, want to say those words, it doesn't make them true. You know what I mean? My ability to protect my wife, my ability to protect my family physically is limited. It's, it's not infinite. There's a, a limit to my ability to provide safety and protection for another person. And not only is that true physically, but it's true spiritually as well, right? I mean, my ability to spiritually protect my family is also limited. And, and what's more, and, and this is very frustrating, but my ability to spiritually protect people in, in the church as a shepherd is limited. I might want to say the words, don't worry, you're safe with me, I'll protect you, but I, I can't do that. I can't even protect myself in and of myself. In fact, as I, I think about the history of ministry, there are just so many examples I could think of of, I wish, I wish I could have done something there, but I couldn't. I, I've said that we are the people in the book of Numbers, right? That the people in the book of Numbers are people who've come out of slavery and they are not yet in the land of promise. We are a people who have been delivered from a land of slavery and, and sin, and yet we haven't yet reached our, the eternal state of, of God's promised kingdom. Things haven't fully been restored yet. So we're in this, this in-between time. And the question for the people in the book of Numbers is, yes, God, and remember the, the story of the Pentateuch is a, a big story. It's not just the story of Numbers. Yes, God has, has had this big story. He's, he's promised us these things, and yet... There's also some concern. Okay, God promised these things to Abraham, but, but how do we know that he's going to have the ability to, to see this thing through? And even if God could see this thing through and could establish his kingdom, there's also this, this fear, um, how do I know that I won't mess it up or other people won't mess it up? And so we come to this story here in Numbers 22, on and through, we're going to kind of go through chapter 29 or so next week as part of this, this, this story. How do we know that, that God provides? In, in this, we see some things about the nature of God's power and the nature of Him being sovereign. And what I hope happens as we look at this text is you would say, okay, um, the reality, and this is kind of the main thing that I want us to, to think about this week and next, saying this, the reality that God's kingdom is established through the power of Christ the King and not through me and my power, that, that reality comforts me. The reality that God's kingdom is established through the power of, of Christ the King and not through my power, that's, that's comforting to me. Here are the three things we're going to look at 
over this week and next. Let's, let's go ahead and put, put all three of these here so you kind of see where we're going. We're only going to look at the first one this morning. The first is this. The first thing we're going to see this morning is that God sovereignly proclaims salvation through flawed messengers. So as we think about God's power, we say, look, God is even able to proclaim his kingdom through flawed messengers. We're secondly going to see that God sovereignly promises salvation through a glorious king. And really, uh, brothers and sisters, this is the, the heart of what we're looking at this week and next, is that ba- Balaam is going to try to curse the people of Israel, but some words are going to come out of his mouth that describe this, this king, and this king is going to be the one, not the Israelites, but the king is going to be the one through whom this kingdom is able to be established. And then the third thing we're going to see is that God sovereignly preserves salvation for an undeserving people. And I hope we're going to be comforted as we realize, look, our, our salvation is not dependent upon us and our ability and our power, but upon God and this, this king. As we, we think about uh, this, this section, the story of, of Balaam and, and Balak, we're going to see a lot of threes, a lot of threes. There's going to be three sets of days. There's going to be three uh, times that... Balaam hits his donkey. There's going to be three sacrifices, lots, lots of threes. But here are the threes that I want you to think about this week and next. First of all, there's going to be three encounters with God. And those, that's going to kind of form the outline of our story this morning. Three encounters Balaam has with God. And then we're going to see kind of three main blessings that Balaam gives next week on the people. So three encounters with God, three blessings. Let's look, go back here to the first Uh, main point here that God's sovereignly proclaimed salvation through flawed messengers. This is what we're looking at this morning, and we're going to see these these three encounters. Here's the first encounter. So go ahead and look at your text. We quite a bit in the text this morning. Uh, Look at your text, and you see in verses 1 through 6 kind of a, a setup for the first encounter. The people of Israel are there. They're on the plains of Moab. And so the people who are around the people of Israel are, are getting a little nervous. They hear what happened in chapter 21, just right before this, and how Israel took care of the Amorites. And so Moab and Balak, the king of Moab, looks at the people of Israel and goes, boy, this, this, is, a, this is a scary situation. This is a very powerful people. And, there, and Balak seems to also understand, this, this king seems to also understand there's some, sort of, there's some sort of spiritual element to the nature of their success. And so Balak is nervous. And Balak contacts the other uh, the Midianites, some, Midianites, some other people in the area, and he says, guys, we need to do something about this. And uh, he says, I think, I think we need to contact Balaam. And so they get together and they, they contact Balaam. And why did they contact Balaam? Balaam was a superstar. He was famous in this region for his, his divine abilities, for his communication with the spirit world. In fact, there are some, I think some like old tablets with different colored ink on them from uh, thousands of years ago that are not part of the, the biblical record, but just kind of in the same region that describe Balaam. They, they talk about Balaam. Balaam in the the story that these tablets tell talks about how 
Balaam uh, had a dream, he went to sleep, and he was troubled by the dream because the gods spoke to him through the dream, and then he wakes up and he begins to, to tell the people what the gods have told him. So he's, he's a famous figure in this region and was famous for his ability to, to see and perceive the spirit realm. And so Balak contacts Balaam this prophet, and says, look, we we need your help. In fact, notice the things that Balak says about the type of help he needs and why he needs the help. It says that he was in dread because the people were so many. He says to the elders of Midian, he calls them a a horde, a large group of people. And then the message to Balaam says, a people has come out of Egypt and I need you to curse them because they're too mighty for me. Now, and again, all this takes place in the context of the people defeating the Amorites. Now, what do you think Moses is trying to communicate through relating this part of Balak's speech to us? What I believe that God is trying to teach us through this passage and help us understand is that right now, what Balak is is witnessing with his eyes as he looks out and sees the people of Israel, what he sees with his eyes is the fulfillment of what God promised through Abraham. Remember, the Pentateuch is one big story. And what had happened in Genesis chapter 12, God had appeared to Abram, and what had he told Abram? He told him to go. He says, go to the land that I'll show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You come to chapter 15, and he affirms this this, uh, promise to Abraham. He makes this covenant. And then God tells this to Abraham. He says, know for certain, this is Genesis 15, 13, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall be, come out with great possessions. And then it says in verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. The people who bless you, I will bless. The people who curse you, I will curse. And yet your people are going to go to a land to be sojourners there for 400 years, and they're going to come out of that land, and they're going to deal with the Amorites. So remember that's what happens in Genesis. And now Moses is saying, through the eyes of this pagan king, what God said would happen is happening before his eyes. And so he contacts Balaam through these these elders, through these leaders, and he says, I I want you to curse this people. That brings us to the first encounter. Remember, three encounters. The first encounter begins here in verse 7. The the people come to Balaam with the, he calls them the fees for divination. They want to pay him to, to curse the Israelites. And he says, okay, um, stay here. I'm going to bring back the word that God speaks to me. And um, night happens. God comes to Balaam, asks who the men are. And Balaam says, okay, Balak, and he kind of describes the situation. And then in verse 12, what does God say? 
Two things in terms of instruction. Don't go with them, number one. Number two, don't curse them because they're blessed. Now, that's it, right? That should have ended things. But what does Balaam say? He gets up in the morning and he says to the princes of Balak, look, go back to your own land. And then he says, because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The princes rose, they go back to Balak and says, Balaam refuses to go with me. Now, what's, what, what do we see here? Sometimes people can say, well, look, a Balak, uh, or excuse me, Balaam must have been a, at least a decent guy because he, he says, I'm only going to do what God tells me to do. But what's the phrase that he uses? He says, the Lord has refused to let me go. In other words, what I think we see here about Balaam, and the rest of the text and the rest of Scripture bears this out, Balaam's heart's desire is to do what Balak has offered, asked him to do. Balaam's desire is to curse the people. Really, Balaam's desire is to get the prestige and the financial reward that goes with cursing this people. And God here represents not an objective for Balaam, but an obstacle Balaam, and we don't understand everything about Balaam and his interaction with the spirit world, but clearly he was involved. I think the text purposely doesn't describe some of the things that Balaam is involved in because these are wicked things. And so Balaam is a person that somehow has some sort of insight in the spirit realm and through doing wicked things. And he recognizes that there is an entity, a deity, who is preventing him from doing all that he would desire to do. And so his, his reluctance to, to do things is not based on a, a reluctance in terms of emotional reluctance, but, but physical reluctance. He's physically unable to do the thing that God prevents him from doing. Imagine if, if uh, you know, your, your manager, you ask your manager for something, and the manager says, look, I, I would love to do that, but, but corporate, you know. Those, those guys at corporate, they just won't let me do this. In other words, there, there's an obstacle, a barrier, this, this higher power that's preventing me from doing what I want to do, but, you know, I, I'd love to. It doesn't mean that your manager and corporate love each other. It just means that corporate represents an obstacle. Balaam, God represents an obstacle to me. I'm doing what I want to do. It's a first encounter. And you see the second encounter beginning in verse 15 and Balak sends princes, it sends more and, and more honorable. And they, they come to Balaam again and says, look, this is, this is what Balak is saying. Don't let anything hinder you from coming to me. I'm going to do you great honor. And Balaam says, look, I, I can't go beyond the command of the Lord my God. And I don't think he's saying the Lord my God there in the sense of that's the God I worship, but the, the God who is, is in, in control here. Now, stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. In other words, what Balaam should have said is, okay, look, God has been pretty clear. These people are blessed. I'm not supposed to even be associating with you. I'm not supposed to go with you. I'm not supposed to curse them. There's nothing more I can do. But what does Balaam want? Balaam wants the prestige and the financial reward from cursing the people of Israel. And so he tries again. In the second encounter, God comes to Balaam and says, look, you can go with them, but only do what I tell you. 
Then we come to the third encounter. And we see in the third encounter that God is opposed to Balaam and the intentions of his heart. As the text will later kind of make clear, his, his, his desires and his, his purposes are wicked and against what God desires. And then, because he's opposed here by God, he, he rides on his donkey, and we have this, again, that story we, we read earlier together, where the donkey comes upon the angel of the Lord in the road, and the donkey turns off, and Balaam hits it, then he comes to the vineyard with the walls on the other side, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in the road, turns, and Balaam hits the donkey, and then there comes to this point where the, the donkey can't turn to the right or the left, and so the donkey sees the angel of the Lord again and just plops down. And Balaam just wails on the donkey. And God allows the donkey to speak, and through what means, we don't know. But the donkey says, look, what are you doing? I'm mad. I wish I had a sword and I would kill you. You're making me look like an idiot. And then the donkey says, look, have have I ever done anything like this before? Haven't I always treated you well? And Balaam goes, well, yeah. No, he just says that simple word. The donkey says, I've ever treated you badly. No. What's what's the purpose of this exchange? Remember, Balaam represents Balaam represents the absolute best that the pagan world has to offer in terms of interacting with the spiritual world. If there's if this is a spiritual fight to be had, Balaam represents their their best warrior. And Balaam looks like a fool. He cannot even see what his donkey can see. What is sillier than arguing with a donkey? Arguing with a donkey and losing. And that's what happens to Balaam here, right? His donkey out-argues him. Yeah, I guess this doesn't make sense. Balaam is forced to admit. And then his eyes are opened. He sees the angel of the Lord. He says, what do you want me to do? Do I need to turn back? And God allows him to go with to go to Balak. And we're going to talk about those blessings next week. But with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to, I want to talk about Balaam and what this means that, that God is, is sovereign even over this, this ancient diviner. Balaam is this guy who is engaged in things that are forbidden by God. Deuteronomy 18.10 says, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, none of those people should be found among you. Second Kings 17.7 talks about those who used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Also, we know that Balaam is a wicked guy because of what happens next. Now, we're going to pause the story this week here in Numbers 22. Next week, we're going to see Balaam, this, this wicked prophet, we're going to see him proclaim blessings instead of curses on God's people, but the story doesn't end there. You know what Balaam does next? Balaam is is so greedy. He is so brilliantly evil. You know what he does next after he he blesses the people? He recognizes God's blessing upon the people, and then he he goes to the kings. He goes to the the Midianites, the Moabites. He says, look, guys, Man, God, 
God is on the side of this, of this people. You know what you need to do to get to this people? You've got to separate them from their God. Because if you don't separate them from their God, there's, there's nothing you're going to be able to do. And so what does he do? What, what does this brilliant, evil person do? He, he convinces them to, to trick the people of Israel into engaging in immorality. Numbers 25 describes this that we'll look at. Numbers 31 talks about the end of Balaam. He's killed by the sword in Numbers 31. It says, Moses says, these, he talks about the, the people uh, that they're fighting. He says, these are the people on Balaam's advice who caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among, among the congregation of the, of the Lord. Balaam is a wicked, wicked guy. And what was, the, what was the motivation behind Balaam's wickedness? He's wicked because of, of what he loves. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about false prophets and false prophets who deny the master who bought them, who follow sensuality, people who, who blaspheme the truth. And then he says, this is Peter writing in Second Peter Chapter 2, verse 14, it says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Hearts trained in greed. This, he's talking about contemporary false prophets. And then he says, Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Who are these, these false prophets and false teachers? Well, they're, they're people like Balaam who, who love to, to profit. And because of that love for profit, they, they do wrong. Jude talks about false teachers as well. And in Jude, verse 11 says, Woe to them, they walked in the way of Cain, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error. Again, describing false teachers who are, are led astray by their desire for gain. Revelation 2.14 talks about Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. What can we say about Balaam? Balaam is one who recognized the power of God and yet saw God as, as an obstacle. And because of that, he didn't, he didn't like these, these God-imposed limitations, and he yearned for physical and financial pleasure, and so he turned his abilities to pursue fleshly desires. And he presented a, a danger to the people of Israel through what he did. But what else do we see? In Balaam. We see a treacherous individual who even in his wickedness is under God's control. Despite his desire to harm people, despite his desire to, to profit from his wickedness, even Balaam is under God's control. Balaam, 
despite his desire to do evil, proclaims some of the most Christ-centered, powerful proclamations of a coming king that we encounter in the Old Testament. The things that he says about Jesus are majestic and beautiful truths. Balaam, even Balaam, becomes a canvas upon which God paints a picture of his majestic glory. Even Balaam. Now, how is that encouraging for you and for me? What does it mean? It means that Balaam's not the mover. God is. A sovereign God can use anyone. And people who are, are hearing this story originally know how the story ends. They, they, know, that it's, they know who Balaam is, and they, they see the, the utter amazement that God uses this guy to proclaim these amazing truths about the future of Israel. Now, let's think about some application, and next week we're going to get into the blessings that Balaam proclaims. So just as we, we think about Balaam, we think about this idea of God's sovereignty and how God's establishing of his kingdom through a sovereign king and his power, not my power, how that gives me comfort. Here's, let's just think about this, this first idea, God proclaiming salvation through flawed messengers. How, how do I respond to that? This, this truth that God's going to establish his kingdom. I need to be on the winning side here. What lessons can I gain? One, one is this. I need to be fearful of my, my motivations, right? If God is going to establish his kingdom, even through flawed messengers, I, I don't want to be one of the flawed messengers, right? I, I don't want to be a person who's setting myself up in opposition against God, and I need to be very careful as I consider my, my motivation for ministry, and really not just my, my motivation for ministry, but my motivation for life. What gain do I, do I, do I, do I have? Is God, my, is God an obstacle or is he my objective? In other words, I think about my life, so I think about the things that I'm doing in my life. Do I say, okay, my great object in life is God and his glory and worshiping him and he's whom I, whom I am pursuing? Or do I say it this way instead? Do I say, you know what, I have all these things that I want to do, because of God, I can't do all those things. I've just got to do this, right? Does God, does God represent the objective of your passion, the object of your passion, or does he represent obstacles on what you really want to pursue? I need to be careful. What's my motivation for ministry? I can say some really nice things about Yahweh God, about Jesus Christ, but if he's not my passion, I'm not truly worshiping him. We talked about that last week. Another application I think here is I, I need to be fearful of profiting from ministry, right? I need to be careful of profiting from ministry. It's true for me as, as a pastor, a person who receives money for, for doing the, the job that I'm doing so that I can continue to do this job. But it's not just financial reward, right? There's prestige. There's the accolades, respect of other people as I engage in certain ministries. What gain do you get from serving others? I need to be very careful. Is my objective here God in his glory or the things that I'll receive from people? I need to watch what pulls me to, to do that which I do. I need to watch for the fruit of selfishness in my life. The fruit of selfishness being a desire for power or power struggles or resentment of others or demanding more or feeling like life is treating me unfairly. You'd be careful. I need to be fearful of pride in my ministry. I'd be fearful of pride in my ministry. Why is pride so dangerous? Because it exalts, exalts myself, right, in ministry. 
As I think about my ministry, what do I need to realize? I need to realize that God can literally use a donkey to proclaim his truths. I'm not that special. (laughs) Another application, I I need to be confident that God's truth is God's truth regardless of the mouthpiece from whom that truth comes. Now, I certainly, all of us would say, boy, I don't, I don't want to be a mouthpiece that, that fails to bring glory to God through my life. I don't want to get in the way of, of God's message. But we can also take comfort in this. Even when we encounter in our lives flawed messengers, people who, through the conduct of their life, aren't faithful to the message that they're proclaiming, I can still be confident that the truth they proclaim is still truth. Maybe some of you have been in churches where You've been influenced or ministered to by people who've spoken truth to you, and then they've, they've fallen in some significant ways, and there can be some great discouragement. But what does this tell us? It tells us, look, God's truth is not based upon the goodness of the person who's proclaiming it, but upon his goodness and his truthfulness. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he's, he's talking about people who are preaching Christ. He says, look, yeah, you know what? Some people are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Can you imagine that? A person proclaiming glorious truths about Christ from envy and rivalry, but others are doing it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, what then? Should we say, boy, I'm just so discouraged about the people who have bad attitudes or have bad motives as to proclaim the gospel or people who are undermining the gospel in their lives? Paul says, no, no, no. I'm going to still rejoice. He says, here's what this means. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is still being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. God's message of salvation depends not upon the person who's proclaiming it, but upon the power of the message itself as God works his power through that message. That, brothers and sisters, should give you hope this morning. It's, it's hard thinking about where the people in the book of Numbers are. They are in a tight spot that's about to get a lot tighter due to their own sin. And the forces that they are around are doing everything they can to prevent them from entering the promised land. They are setting out their number one spiritual warrior to oppose, to oppose the people of Israel. And this guy is going to give it everything he, he has to prevent them from being successful in their desire to worship Yahweh God and to enter this land. And even this guy is going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ inadvertently, despite his best efforts. What's my hope? What's my hope this morning in whatever situation I find myself as I'm sitting in church? My my hope is this. The reality that God's kingdom is established through the power of Christ the King and not through me comforts me. I can stand up here and I can say to you, I can say to my family, I can say, do not worry. You're safe with me. I will protect you. But you and I both know those, those are empty promises. Nice desires, but empty promises. But this King, this Jesus, this Messiah, 
You can say those words, and they are absolutely 100% guaranteed true. You do not need to worry. You're safe with me. I'll protect you. I'll save you. We trust in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, for the, the powerful king that he is. And we, we turn to him now in our weakness. We turn to him now in our frailty. And we, we place our, our confidence and our hope in him alone. Save us, we pray, not for our own goodness, not in our own strength, but because of the great goodness and power of your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.